Welcome to New City Sermon Podcast. Join us as we open God's Word to be empowered and challenged today. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We're going to be in John chapter 2. And by the way, you can take those. You're allowed to steal our Bibles. We're fine with that. It's not really stealing. They're for you. Lord Jesus, we ask uh, that you would bless our time in your word today. And we pray that as we see a fresh picture of who you are, Jesus, that you would bring us to a place of deeper belief in you as the Son of God and as the Creator. Lord, we pray that you would bring this Scripture to life and that it might change our hearts and change our beliefs and change the way we live. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'm going to invite Megan and Zuli to come on up. Let's welcome them. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. What does that have to do with you and me, woman? Jesus asked. My hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. When the head waiter tasted the water after he had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, Everyone sets out the fine wine first. Then, after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs, in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near, and so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. After making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, This temple took 46 years to build, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered this, that he had said this, 
and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he knew what was in man. Our question for today, we're looking at the questions in each chapter that Jesus asks. And uh, the question is, what does this have to do with me? <clears throat> in uh, our translation, it says, uh, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? In the ESV, it says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And uh, it's an interesting question, um, but I ought to tell you a funny story about this question. But when I was a little boy, I could be a little bit ornery. I know that's unbelievable, but I could. I could be a little bit ornery, particularly to my sweet mother. And uh, there was a time that I remember where when I was a little boy, my mother came to me and asked me to do something. Like, you need to clean up your room or something like that. I can't quite remember. And I looked at her and I said, woman? And then basically said, you know, I'm not going to do it. And what was said to me in return was, you do not call me woman. You call me mother. To which I replied, Jesus called his mother woman, and you want me to follow Jesus. <laughs> My poor mother, y'all. Well, let's just say that I have absolutely no memory what happened after that. But I never called my mother woman again. I love you, Mom. <laughs> you know, it's funny, that question that, he's, that he asked, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? When we hear it, it, it kind of sounds like how I said it. It, it sounds somewhat uh, disrespectful or, or belittling almost in a way. And we'll, we'll get to that and we'll unpack that. Because uh, it's really not, it's really not a belittling thing that he says to her when you understand the original language and what's going on. Because Mary is actually coming to her son expressing belief in who he is. He has not yet done a miracle. She's never seen him do anything supernatural and she's coming to him in this story and sort of hinting that he might be able to do something supernatural in this story. But ultimately she's coming to him because she believes in him, Not just that he exists, not just that he's her son, but that he is the Messiah. Everything that she learned about him when the angels visited her before Jesus was born, she believes. And that's really the question for you today. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is life and that in him is the light of humanity? Do you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to dwell among broken sinners like you and me? Do you, do you believe that Jesus came into this world to reveal his glory, to be grace and to be truth and to bring grace upon grace? Well, let's get into the story. The backdrop is a wedding. And weddings were very different in those days than they were in our day. The culture was very different, first of all, because they didn't necessarily have an engagement period. They had a betrothal period. And a betrothal period is like an engagement on steroids. In other words, in our, in our culture, you can break off an engagement, and it's really disappointing. Uh, in their culture, if you break off a betrothal, it is like you're getting divorced even before you're getting married. So that's one difference. Another difference is that when they, 
when they had the wedding, uh, the procession wasn't necessarily down the center aisle. It was through the streets of the city. So the whole wedding party would go through the streets of the city. And it wouldn't just last an afternoon or an hour. Wedding ceremonies lasted days. They lasted days. In fact, weddings could last up to seven days. And one of the key ingredients to a good wedding, or not just a good wedding, but any wedding in this culture was the presence of wine. Uh, You could not have a wedding if you did not have wine because in their culture, wine represented joy. It represented celebration. In Psalm 104.5, it says that God has given wine to make hearts glad. And so right at the center of their wedding celebration was the presence of wine. And you couldn't run out of wine. Now, we might struggle with that on different levels. Some people come from maybe a a more legalistic background, and you've been taught that wine is in of itself evil. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that the misuse of alcohol is wrong. Uh, Paul doesn't say don't drink wine. He says don't get drunk on wine. Uh, But wine in and of itself is not a bad thing. You might also struggle with that if you're working through recovery and you're going, it's just easier for me to say, don't go there. Well, we would actually applaud you. If you're in recovery, don't move towards wine because it's not a bad thing. Uh, Stay where you are. We're behind you. Keep walking in recovery. You know, the Bible teaches is that if we have a good gift from God and we only abuse it, then it's better just to not use it at all. Okay? So I want you to understand that, that wine is a gift from God, but if we cannot use it correctly, then we shouldn't use it at all. But in and of itself, it represented joy and celebration at this wedding. Right off the bat, we're called to believe something about Jesus. Because in verse 1 and 2, it says that the wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, Jesus' mother was there, and then in verse 2 it says, Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. Uh, Jesus' ministry has just begun, and here he is at a party. His first recorded thing that we're seeing is that he shows up at this party in John chapter 2. Do you have a view of Jesus where he would actually go to a party? Or do you not believe that the word became flesh and dwelled among us? Uh, sometimes we can have this view of Jesus that he was always somber and he never interacted in human affairs. But right from the beginning, we're called to see that Jesus was invited to a party and he went. But then secondly, there's a whole other sermon in this. Uh, just to check, have you invited Jesus into your marriage? There's something wise that this couple did in inviting Jesus to the marriage, not even knowing who he was, but... Have you invited Jesus into your wedding, Jesus into your marriage? You know, as a broken man, and knowing that you are broken people, we will run out of forgiveness for each other in marriage if we don't have the sinless, perfect one who's full of forgiveness. So let me encourage you. There's a whole other sermon there, but let me encourage you. Invite Jesus into your marriage. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, when the wine ran out, we have a problem. And it's like this. Let's say that you go to a wedding, and you pull up to the wedding, and you get to the, to, the, to the front of the wedding, to the front of the building, and the whole wedding party is outside of the building. And you walk up to the building, and the bride's crying, 
and the groom is hanging his head, and you go, what's going on? I thought the wedding started in 10 minutes. And someone stomps their feet and go, the families forgot to book the chapel. We're locked out. And you're like, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. You got the invitations, you got the engagement ring and the wedding ring, and you got all the groomsmen and the bridesmaid, but you forgot to book the chapel? How could you do it would stain that family's reputation for years to come. How could they miss such an obvious fact? And that makes sense to us, but what makes sense to them is you didn't make sure there was enough wine for the party? How could you miss such an obvious fact? When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. And that's when we get to our question in verse 4. What does this have to do with you and me, woman? Now, when Jesus calls his mom woman, he's not belittling her by his tone. It's actually a polite term where he's esteeming her. She's not as honorary as I was for, by any means, but he's actually being respectful. But it's a good question that he asks. He says, what does this have to do with you and me? I mean, what does this have to do with Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. He's the creator. I mean, if he wants to show up at a party and sit in the back, that should be his prerogative. He shouldn't be forced to do anything that he doesn't want to do. What does this have to do with him? Because this people's mistake is not his emergency. And yet, when Jesus asks that question, he means something a little bit different. He means something deeper. Because he says, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And what Jesus is getting at is that now is not the time that he is going to reveal the fullness of who he is and what he's come for. That moment will come at the gruesomeness of the cross and the glory of an empty tomb. But it's not now. It's not now. In fact, throughout the book of John, over and over and over again, Jesus will say, it's not my hour. Or John will narrate, for it wasn't his hour. Until the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus prays in John 17, 1, my hour has come. It's time for me to reveal who I am. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to the tomb. I will resurrect from the tomb. But here in the story, his hour has not yet come. Well, then Mary, I mean, that's kind of a flat answer. Mary just kind of says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. And man, if there is ever any advice that I could give you as a Christian, it is to do whatever Jesus tells you. Whatever situation you are in, do whatever Jesus tells you. You know, we're here kind of looking in on a party where the wine has run out. And oftentimes in our lives, we view life as this celebration, this party, this thing where we're meant to enjoy until the wine runs out. The party's going well in our lives until it isn't. We're drinking deeply of life, and then all of a sudden it dries up. We've built our lives around things that run out, that dry up, and that crumble in our hands. And what do we do in those situations? Whatever Jesus tells you to do. You do whatever Jesus tells you to do, and that's simply a way to say, trust and obey. Believe and follow what he says. 
What's interesting in this story is that Jesus is going to work through their obedience. Now, it would be wrong to say that because they obey, they force Jesus to work. That's not wrong. We can't make Jesus do anything. He does what he wants, and he does it by his grace, and he does it by his desire to bless. And yet, Jesus is going to work in this problem as they obey him. And so listen, if you have run out of wine, do whatever he tells you to do. If you have run out of wine in your dating life, don't stop obeying him. Start obeying him in your dating life. Don't don't go and, and pursue a relationship with someone that doesn't follow Jesus when you love Jesus. Just because the wine runs out doesn't mean you should do things on your own. Do whatever he tells you to do. Listen, if the wine has run out in your finances, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Ask yourself, am I following him and making priorities that are other-centered and kingdom-centered with my money rather than just thinking it as mine for my pleasure? And listen, parents and kids, if your relationship is beginning to break down and the wine is running out of your relationship, do whatever Jesus tells you. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. The first command with the promise. Parents, don't exasperate your children. It could be that the wine has run out because you weren't following Jesus in the first place. When the wine runs out, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And that is not religious and that is not legalism. It's about a relationship with him. The next verse, in verse 6, now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. So there are these six jars. Six times 20 is 120. Six times 30 is 180. So we're looking at six jars that hold somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons. Now each of those contained 20 to 30. I got this from the lounge. This is five gallons right here. So we're looking at four to six times that size of a jar. But what's interesting is the purposes for those jars. Like, what were they originally for? The text tells us that six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. In other words, the water that was in those jars was used for a ceremony where you would cleanse yourself and make yourself more religiously acceptable. It was a tool that you used to purify yourself, that people cleansed themselves to make themselves more acceptable in a religious system. And Jesus is about to repurpose those water jars. Jesus is about to repurpose those water jars through a miracle. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them in verse 7. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the head water, head waiter. And they did. They did whatever Jesus told them to do. Verse 9, and when the head waiter tasted the water after it had become wine. I'm going to stop right there for a minute. Where's the miracle? I mean, when water is turned to wine, we would expect a little more drama in this scene. Like maybe Jesus would stand over the six cisterns And say, by the power of God in me, I command thee water that I created 
as the sky begins swirling above him and light comes down. I command thee, water, be wine. But it doesn't say that. It just kind of mentions after the water had become wine. Now, John knows that you're no dummy. John knows that you know that water just doesn't turn into wine. Uh, First of all, wine doesn't come from water. Wine comes from grapes, right? And not just grapes that sit there, but that grapes that get crushed out in a wine press so that the juice can flow. And, And that juice doesn't turn into wine in a matter of minutes or hours. It takes weeks or days for that juice to ferment and turn into wine. Now, John knows that you're no dummy. He knows that water doesn't turn, just turn into wine, but he also assumes that you've been reading what he's been writing. You ever send someone an email with a lot of details, and then you run into them later, and they bring up the topic that you wrote them an email about, and they ask you about it, and you say, I wrote all that down in an email. John is assuming you've read what he already wrote in John 1, 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We hope you're inspired by God's Word. What have you learned so far? As you listen, pray about applying it to your life. Let's continue in God's Word. Now, you remember from week one, who is the word? Jesus. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was God. And that means that Jesus was the creator. Jesus was part of the creation process. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In other words, the water that's sitting in front of him, Jesus created. The mud that was shaped into those cisterns and jars, Jesus created. He is the sovereign creator, and John is assuming that you've read what he wrote. And it's not that that Jesus uses some sort of like weird energy source to change the water into wine. It's not about his energy. It's about his divine authority as the creator of all things. It's about his divine authority because in the story, Jesus doesn't even say a word about the water becoming wine. He doesn't say water to wine. You'd think he'd do that. So he must have just thought it. He must have just thought water become wine. And before the water could even say okay, it had fermented and turned red. Jesus is the sovereign creator. And the wine he makes evidently is not cheap wine. This is top-shelf stuff. Top-shelf stuff. Following in verse 9, the head waiter does not know where the wine comes from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then after people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now, or you have saved the best for last. There's the miracle. Uh, what, What do we make of this miracle? What do we make of what Jesus has done? Well, this is his first public miracle. 
And it's interesting that Jesus chooses to do his first miracle in a place where people have made a mistake and an error that's going to ruin a party. But Jesus steps in and keeps the party going. Jesus steps in and makes the water into wine so that joy and celebration would continue in the midst of this very human event. Do you believe in that Jesus? Do you believe in that Jesus who comes to bring more joy and more celebration in our lives? Or do you think that walking with Jesus is saying no to the party? No, walking with Jesus is full of joy and celebration because Jesus is the life of the party. You and I have no hope apart from him, separated from God by our sins, but yet Jesus comes not to teach us how to be religious, but to fill us up with new wine, the new wine of relationship with him. You and I cannot cleanse ourselves and make us acceptable to God. There's not enough good works that we can do to say, God, I'm now good, and so I'm good with you. And that's exactly what Jesus shows us by repurposing those religious cisterns where the waters of religion become the new wine of relationship with him. It's an invitation for us to not focus on self-purifying ourselves to make us acceptable to God, but rely on Jesus to purify us and give us new life that we might have relationship with our creator. It's not about religion. It's about a relationship with him. And the funny thing is that as you walk with Jesus more and more and more in this life, uh, your spiritual palate changes a little bit. And what I mean by that is the things of this world grow strangely dim, as the old hymn says. The things that you used to think tasted good don't seem as appetizing as a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're able to look at the things of this world and say, I'm no longer drawn to those things like I am. Relationship with Jesus Christ. Relationship with him is delightful. Well, Jesus does this first sign. Verse 11 says it's the first of his, of his signs. And Jesus does seven more signs in the book of John. Now, a sign is a miracle with a purpose. It's a miracle with a purpose. And the purpose is really that Jesus has done something supernatural, not just to do something supernatural, but rather to point people to who he is and what he's come to do. So the miracle is not the point. The miracle is pointing to Jesus. If you ever have a dog and you throw a stick, and the dog doesn't see the stick, and you take your finger and you point, and the dog just stares at your finger, and you're like, no, it's over there. And the dog just follows your finger around. The, the, the point is not the finger, the point is the stick. That's where you're pointing. And with these miracles, they're meant to point us to who Jesus is, that he revealed his glory, and that we might believe in that you and I might believe in who Jesus is as the Lamb of God and the Son of God and, and the light and the life and the Word and the Creator, that you and I might believe in who he is. There's a YouTube preacher who um, goes around and does street miracles, and uh, just so you know, they're not really miracles. It's fake, and that's been proven. 
But one of the things that bothers me even more than they're fake is when he goes and does these miracles for people, he ends the supposed miracle by saying, hey, Jesus thinks you're awesome. And then he walks away. And I'm like, uh, isn't the point of the miracle that that person would think Jesus is awesome? I mean, isn't that the point of why Jesus does these signs? Not so we would just have a fixed party, but so that we would fix our eyes on Jesus in faith. The stories here, the questions are asked, the party keeps going because Jesus ultimately wants us to see who he is and what he's done for us. And to throw the question out to you, do you believe? Do you believe in him? Do you believe in his name? After this episode, Jesus travels with his mother, his brother, and his disciples, and then they go for Passover to Jerusalem. And there's this famous scene where he goes into the temple and he clears the temple out. And he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And I can't help but think of the irony. Like, in the first story, Jesus, like, saves the party. And in the second story, he, he like, brings the party to an end. What's going on? I mean, we have one uh, public act of ministry where he kind of veils who he is. But then he shows up at the temple and he, like, cleans out the whole temple, and this is people's first impression of him. So what's going on? Well, in the temple in Jerusalem, people would travel from far away to get there and worship Yahweh, the God of Israel. And as they came near, they needed to buy a sacrifice in order to offer to Israel's God, in order to offer to their God. And so he found there were people that were selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and people exchanging money. The problem was, is they weren't doing that outside the temple. They were doing that in what's called the court of the Gentiles. It was the place where non-Jewish people could get close to Israel's God and worship. Now, let's just say that this is the court of the Gentiles, and the rest of the temple's back there, and this place is filled with goats and doves and the clanking of change. It is going to be hard for you and I to worship God. They've turned it into a marketplace. And so when Jesus clears out the temple and his disciples remember that zeal for your house will consume me, it's a worship issue. That Jesus is passionate about worship, but not just worship for the Jewish people, but worship for all nations. In other words, there's something about reconciliation that God has built into the temple for different people to come together and worship. So when you and I talk about being God's blended family, that's not something that I've just made up. That's not even something that's just New Testament. That's something that God has put in his plan from eternity to bring all the nations around Jesus and worship him. And we see that even here, that Jesus is frustrated that the court of the Gentiles has been turned into a marketplace. Verse 18, after he wrecks the court of the Gentiles and clears everybody out, the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And I find what's interesting is that they they don't tell Jesus, you shouldn't have done that. They just say to him, why did you do that? Show us your authority. And what Jesus said really irks them. Jesus says to them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
And the Jews say to him, the temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it in three days? If you've seen a picture of Herod's temple, it was magnificent. And, and what Jesus is saying about destroying and rebuilding the temple doesn't make any logical sense. But Jesus, verse 21, was talking about the temple of his body. He, he wasn't talking about a building where God dwelled and you came to worship him. He, he's talking about a body where all the fullness of the deity dwelled in. Jesus wasn't talking about a place you went to worship Jesus, but about a, or to worship God, but about a, a person that God came to earth in, Jesus Christ. You'll remember in John 1 that Jesus said, In me you will see angels ascending and descending on a ladder. And Jesus was saying that he, not the temple, was now the touch point between God and man. That he himself was the presence of God on earth. So his first reason was that he was seeing the Gentiles restricted from worship. But his second reason was that the temple was becoming obsolete. The temple where God dwelled was becoming obsolete. Everything that the temple represented was accomplished in Jesus Christ. Everything that people were supposed to do at the temple had been done at the cross by Jesus Christ. The temple was now obsolete because the presence of God was there in the person of Jesus. 22 says, so when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. One of the things that John is going to hammer over and over and over with you is do you believe? Believe comes up over and over and over again. And as we think about Jesus making the temple obsolete, do you believe that everything that you could find in a temple 2,000 years ago, you can find in the person of Jesus. I mean, people went to the temple to do a ceremony to receive forgiveness. Do you believe that you can find forgiveness before God, not through a ceremony, but through the Son of God? Do you believe? You know, many of us need to know that God's wrath against sin is not against us. And the way they found that out at the temple was they would sacrifice an animal that was judged in their place. But through Jesus, the Lamb of God, the wrath of God was poured out on him instead of on you. Do you need to be near the presence of God? Will you no longer go to a place to be near the presence of God? Because Jesus is God in the flesh. And after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sent the Holy Spirit the very presence of God, to live in you. Do you need spiritual renewal? Well, you don't find renewal by being near God at a spiritual building, but rather by the empty tomb that Jesus left when he rose from the dead. Verse 23 tells us, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Many believed. But the question is, do you believe? Do you believe that what John has told us about Jesus is true? 
that he is the life, that he is the light of all mankind, that he is the creator, that he is the word became flesh, that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the one who reveals God to us. Do you believe? Jesus did many signs, but they were never to impress anybody. Jesus didn't need people's attention. But he did them to give us a taste of who he is and what he had come for. He did us, he did these things that we might find life in him, that he might point to us who he is, and that a spiritual miracle might happen in us. That you and I might come from dead hearts to alive hearts, from hearts that reject Jesus to hearts that lovingly submit to him. Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus? That's why we come to this table. We come to this table uh, as weak and broken people who need a sign. Do we need a sign that God loves us? Do we need a sign that Jesus rose from the dead on our behalf? Do we need a a sign that the, the payment that Jesus gave on the cross fully satisfied the wrath of the God? And Jesus offers us this sign, the sign and seal of this table. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed on your behalf. And if you believe that, it's not trite. It's not accidental. It's actually a spiritual miracle that has happened in you. If you're at a place in your life where you say, I've looked for wine in a lot of places and I've never been satisfied and I know the only place to find the spiritual wine I need is in Jesus Christ, then this table is for you. But if you're exploring, if you're going, I I want a little bit of Jesus and a little bit of other things, we would encourage you not to come forward. This is for people whose only hope is in Jesus Christ. But as you sit there and watch others come Take the bread and, and, and the juice. Uh, pray. And say, Jesus, open my heart. Reveal who you are. If you're real, which he is, do a spiritual miracle in me that I might come to believe. Just so you know, I know that we've been talking about wine the whole service. This is grape juice, not wine. I want to be clear on that just so everyone uh, feels free to partake. Jesus, we thank you for your deep love for us. Lord, we thank you for the wine of the new covenant, for the forgiveness of sins. Lord, we pray for those who are wrestling with belief right now, who are, see something unique in you and yet are afraid to commit fully to you. Lord, would you awaken their hearts? Uh, we love you, Jesus, and we pray that those who have put all their hope in you would be spiritually encouraged and strengthened right now as they partake of this great sign. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to New City Sermon Podcast. For more information, check us out at www.newcityhh.com. We'll see you next week.